Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me on the program is Mike Beggs. Mike teaches and researches political economy at the University of Sydney in Australia. I've been following Mike's work for quite some time. He's on the editorial board over at Jacobin Magazine, a little-known rag that uh, you folks might have heard of. (laughs) Mike's politics are very similar to my own. He has a lot of interesting perspectives. Studying uh, capitalism and socialism from a political economic lens. Uh, it's, you know, doubtless to say at this point, it's it's a pretty confident bet, I think, that left-wing political formations are once again on the rise. Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party in the UK is likely to take power within the next year. Uh, the uh, Bernie Sanders wing of the progressive movement in the United States is looking as hot as ever, particularly given the strikes we've seen uh, out of places like West Virginia, the West Virginia teachers, uh, Oklahoma perhaps is coming uh, right down the pike. We've got grad students and instructors on strike at York University in Toronto, my alma mater, big ups to CUPE 3903. It's on strike uh, again against their shitty employer and administration. Uh, I don't want to leave anyone out. We've got uh, university students and instructors over in the UK on strike as well. But in any case, it's 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 at this point not controversial to say that the socialist movement is on the rise. But we have to think through some of the pitfalls that have uh, you know beset the socialist movement historically. One of those is capitalist finance. Uh, famously, in the 1960s and 70s, the stagflation crisis crippled labor uh, with the Volcker shock. In 1981, Mike Beggs and I are going to talk about that and much more how to game finance and overcome it in the next wave of socialist transformation. Head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe to the society for five bucks or more per month. You'll get access to the B side. that's going to be dropping in a couple of days with Mike and all of the other content over there for subscribers. So you know what to do. Subscribe, support the New Left Agenda. Without further ado, enjoy my interview with Mike Beggs. Joining me on the Dead Pundit Society this week is Mike Beggs. Mike is a senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney in Australia. He is also on the editorial board of Jacobin Magazine. Mike, how you doing? Hey, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. You're a founding member of the Jacobin editorial board, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Insofar as I think, once the, when the magazine had a had an editorial board, I was on it. But I wasn't around for the very first issue, which Beskar, I think, pretty much put together by himself. Yeah, I think he pasted it together with construction paper and yes. uh, and like a glue stick in his dorm 
in uh, Washington, D.C. when he was like uh, 12 years old. Is that right? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> With glitter and stuff like that, yeah. It was probably very pretty, Pascal. I, 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 you know, we're all love here, man. He, the man's a boy <laughs> genius. But in any case, Mike, I'm glad to have you on the show. I've been uh, reading your work for quite some time, and I've been wanting to have you on. But man, you're in Australia, and the time difference is just killer. It is uh, 6 or 7 o'clock at night here on the Eastern Time Zone in the U.S., and it is just you're starting your day, right? Yeah, well, yeah, you want to know what's going to happen on Wednesday? It's already Wednesday today Yeah, for you. Yep. I mean, you're, you're blowing this because I'm not going to post this until, you know, next week. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Mike Mike can see the future. It's really exciting. Uh, go, go actually go flush your toilet for me and tell me which way it flushes. You know, the funny thing is that it doesn't actually work because our toilets, they don't have, there's not as much water in the bowl as you guys have. So it actually doesn't really circulate at all. It just goes straight down. I got to tell you, if I bought a plane ticket just to go to Australia and flush a toilet to see what happens, that would be very disappointing for me. It would. It would be so disappointing. Yeah, yeah. I still haven't quite figured. I've been watching flat Earth videos all week long, and uh, (laughs) I still haven't quite figured out uh, how Australia fits in the mix there. Uh, Are you like on the underside of the disc? Yeah. Is is it like a piece of paper? You just sort of flip it over. That's why we they call it down under, right? I I mean, I guess people did try to 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 dig when you know the convicts (laughs) uh, did actually you know make attempts to dig their way to China. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think the Illuminati uh, is, is uh, didn't didn't quite uh, cover the tracks well enough when uh, they let the down under thing slip. But in any case, <laughs> we're going to be talking about Wall Street and finance, finance versus socialist transformation. To be more specific, my episode last week with Zach Carter of the Huffington Post, we talked quite a bit about John Maynard Keynes. We talked about Wall Street and finance, and now we're going to get a slightly different kind of perspective on uh, finance from a more explicitly, I would say, Marxist uh, kind of orientation. Would that be correct? Is that kind of your yeah? Your I mean, heritage? it depends who you it depends who you ask. <laughs> that's right. That's right. This is not a Marxist show, according to a lot of people. Let's be clear about that. But I, I, th- I think it is. I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I would definitely call myself at least Marxist. Mark ish Marxian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as uh, I talked about last week, the uh, American stock exchange recently has gone through quite a bit of turmoil. Uh, a lot of people were panicking in that moment. Uh, what's your take on that? What, 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 what's the stock market? What does it do? How does it function? And uh, what's its role in uh, global capitalism today? Should we, should we panic? Is there another uh, major crash and recession on the way? How should we uh, conceptualize this thing? Gosh, uh, well, I don't think we should panic. I mean, I think, you know, it goes up and down fairly regularly. Uh, It's also kind of uh, epiphenomenal. I mean, I think that the stock market is bigger in people's consciousness of capitalism than it is uh, important for capitalism. I mean, Mm. it's most of the churning and, you know, most transactions on the stock market are not between rich people and firms, you know, it's not like firms are constant, you know, directly affected. It's, it's what's happening between wealth owners. So it's not like firms have just had a whole lot of wealth wiped out. It's people, rich people, mostly. Speculators, creditors, banks, uh, the people who pass these shares around. On the, on the I mean, the thing is, I mean, the, the biggest thing for, you know, market participants is probably this sudden upsurge in volatility because for a long time volatility on the stock market for the last couple of years was very low and suddenly it shot up and a lot of i mean 
a lot of trading nowadays is is very sophisticated, right? It's not like you think about how people do it. You know, looking at you know looking very carefully at firms and predicting whether they're going to go. Right, they're, they don't open up the Financial Times and, and check yeah, the stock price, I mean, and then call up their broker on the on the uh, the telephone. Rather, they uh, yeah. they uh, they you know they, these are computers. Algorithms are making these uh, you know yeah. split second kind of uh, decisions. Uh, yeah, I mean a, a lot of it's you know for a lot uh, automated, but it and it's probably even more common to say that. Uh, you know, fund managers are probably using algorithm assisted trading. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. automatic, but they'll have systems, statistical systems, basically for choosing stocks, and they'll be building a diversified portfolio. But one of the things, you know, one of the, the things that can feed into the strategies is volatility, like measured volatility, statistically measured volatility, and a lot of people's strategies were had become based on the idea that volatility was probably going to remain low. Jeez, um, geez. So you think that exacerbated the the fall when it came? Yeah, probably. I mean, I'd have to, you know, usually if I was writing a piece on this, I'd be looking into it a lot more carefully. But, you know, just, I mean, I, I'm just like you. I've just been following it in the mm-hmm. newspaper. Um, then definitely I think it's the more important than the fall itself is probably that uptick in volatility, the VIX. Right. So that's going to that change kind of the thing. calculations that people make going forward, you might say. Perhaps it actually might save our asses in some respects, particularly if, like, say, our pension plans are uh, invested in, in Wall Street at this point. We we have to kind of root for this for, for their success anyway, right? Nobody wants to lose their 401k or their pension. Yeah. But I think, I mean, these things, these things happen. They're fairly regular. It's part of uh, nobody seriously expects the stock market to just keep going up and up and up. I think a lot of people... Um, I'd say probably the general consensus even was that it was going to, you know, correct itself, as they say, right? Um, at some point. I mean, it, it's just what the stock market does. I don't actually think it's that big a deal. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, the thing, the, the, the financial crisis, well, what, like 10 years ago now, um, was something of a very different kind, right? I mean, Ben Bernanke at the time said, you know, it's kind of puzzling how what happened in U.S. residential real estate triggered such a big thing because losses on subprime loans are actually much smaller in aggregate than a loss on a bad day on the share market. And yet a bad day on the share market doesn't trigger this you know, panic, massive yeah. crisis, ongoing recession, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. The stock market is just not that central. It's kind of it has more effect on people who hold a lot of shares, rich people, than it does on the rest right, of the economy. Right. So yeah, I, you know, I think that's an important uh, insight that you that you raise there in terms of uh, Wall Street and in the stock market not really having much of a day to day effect on people. This isn't really what causes fundamental, you know, sort of uh, or. Uh, this isn't what necessarily causes crises of market fundamentals in terms of you know producing global recessions and so on, and yet. Uh, the news media covers these things so intensely and produces such a panic about the state of the economy and people really freak out. And this is really the topic I think I want to get into with you. I brought you on the show to discuss, uh, you know, capitalist finance versus socialist transformation. And the key theme here is what's called the Wall Street referendum, you might say. What's what's the notion of, of a Wall Street referendum? And, uh, and, 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 and what do you make of that in terms of uh, say, you know, a Bernie Sanders presidency, say in the United States, for example, 
uh, what kind of impact would that Wall Street referendum have on socialist policies today? Uh, I mean, it's something that we would definitely have to deal with. I mean, you know, the famous quote everybody knows is about, you know, Bill Clinton complaining about the bond vigilantes or whatever. And of course, he wasn't even trying to do anything particularly uh, radical at all. I mean, you have to go back to, I don't know, Mitterrand in France and um, the UK in the 70s, I think, Mm -hmm. to find examples of this. Um, But for sure, I mean, capital controls uh, investment and anything that's going to frighten investors is going to be a problem for any kind of social democratic strategy and something that you've got to find a way to deal with. I mean, we shouldn't overstate it. I mean, to some extent, capital is kind of stuck. You know, it's not like, I, I, I think it would be difficult for most American capital to really flee America, mm-hmm. right? It's that, so you've got a lot of room to the move, costs, I would say. The uh, costs yeah, associated with that, both short-term and long-term, just wouldn't be worth it for them. So it's, it's a lot of hysteria and a lot of threats, a lot of posturing, but it can have a lot of really deep and profound political uh, consequences. In general, if you don't, if you're doing something that's going to frighten the markets, frighten investment, then you're at risk of alienating the people who vote for you. Uh, I think it's as simple right, right. as that because we're still reliant for our everyday subsistence on a capitalist economy. That's not going to change, even if, say, you know, Corbyn or Sanders or somebody gets into power. And I think that's something that we've got to take seriously and, and have to right. deal with in any serious transition for sure for sure for sure so the the real the real uh the real discussion there is we're, we're going to get into this we're kind of i like to start in the weeds just start kind of like at the beginning sure. in the middle of everything so we have we have a lot of balls in the air here right we're talking about uh you know finances wall street referendum if you will the way that finance can uh, can offer a kind of political cultural even check on socialist aspirations, right? Because uh, the the fear of of uh, you know of, of perturbing Wall Street is enough, I think, uh, for the broader populace to kind of react against uh, more socialist politics. Look, the other side to this, though, is that you know, and this was talked about a lot in the fifties and sixties, that uh, high levels of demand is that is good for profits, right? It's good for good for business as well. So it's potent, you know. Kaletsky, you know, his famous 1943 piece said that the, the contradictions of full employment are political, not economic, because, you know, business like workers actually benefits from, in, in a lot of ways, from low unemployment, high demand, uh, and for a while, at least, high profitability can coexist with uh, higher employment, higher wages. So in a certain way, depending on the circumstances, it could actually be favorable for investment, some kind of a... Uh, social democratic full employment kind of program. It's hard to predict in advance. We shouldn't scare ourselves, I guess, by the bugbears. In advance, we've just got to be ready for it. And uh, as much as possible, I think if we're going to go further, if it's going to go further towards a a properly socialist transformation, you've got to relieve yourself of that dependence on capitalist investment decisions. And I think even that we're having this discussion right now is just kind of, uh, it's an odd thing I think, on the ears of a lot of socialists, a lot of Marxists in particular, because, you know, the idea here is, well, why do we need to talk about this? You know, you know what's going to happen when the revolution gets here. We're all going to form into Soviets. We're going to overthrow the state. 
And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll reach a full gay, uh, luxury space communism, you know, overnight. <laughs> uh, and I've had several guests on to try to debunk that kind of attitude. Of course. Yes. Now I can hear it. Now people are coming at me on Twitter as we speak. They're tapping furiously on their keyboards. Adam, that's a, that's a straw man. Nobody really thinks that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, do, do they, I think maybe the logic kind of bears it out, right? That's not what they say. You know, uh, that's not how they account for their political positions. Surely. I was just recently listening to your interview with the diner from yeah, yeah. last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about, um, you know, 1917 and all that. And I think it's clear that taking state power doesn't in itself transform economic relationships, right? Um, and I think what happened with the Soviets, what happened in the, in the economy and in what happened to economic policy in the, in the years after 1917 kind of bears it out. They weren't really ready for managing the economy. And so you have, the, you have this irony where, you know, Lenin is saying we're going to use gold, you know, the only use for gold in, in the Soviet Union is going to be for making toilets, making urinals with. But then the Soviet Union was one of the first countries to go back on gold after the after World War One, mm. ironically, because of runaway inflation, because they weren't ready for that kind of macroeconomic mm. management. Mm -hmm. Because you can't just, you know, you don't just flip a switch, you don't just take state power and suddenly you've changed economic relationships. I mean, in the end, what happened there was really determined by the relationship between peasants in the countryside and workers, etc., in the city. Uh, and you have that, you know, the back and forth between war communism and then the new economic, uh, new economic program. Right, right. So, I mean, I think, you know, we, we, <laughs> I think we can sort of dispense with the, the debates about whether or not such a radical break with uh, capitalism could occur uh, as it did in the Soviet Union. And we could just say, let's just say that it will. And we can just sort of dispense with that, you know, debate and, and, and raise the question that you just brought up, which is to say, OK, so the Soviets themselves had significant troubles uh, with economic policy, uh, with with their monetary system, which, which you know required them to return to the gold, something like a gold standard, uh, to to try to cure inflation. And these are exactly the dynamics that we're talking about today in terms of uh, achieving a socialist yeah. transformation. And so, anybody who would scoff at these discussions as just incrementalism or reformism or Kautskyism or whatever you know kind of uh, slurs are, are kind of launched at us by the uh, extremely online socialist, or Marxist, communist left. Uh, we can just put that to rest right now. So we're going to talk about the dynamics of socialist transformation. One of the names that you just brought up, we're going to talk about uh, Koleski. Who was Koleski? He had uh, a very interesting political take on full employment and uh, inflation and socialist trans programs of socialist transformation that in many ways produced a kind of challenge uh, to Keynes and Keynesian uh, economic policy. What was that Keynesian economic policy that that uh, you know led to full employment, and what was Koleski's uh, kind of uh, uh, challenge to that? All right. Well, first up, you know, I think there's a question as to how much Keynesian policy was responsible for full employment mm -hmm. after the war. Uh, I think that can be really overstated. Like, I think uh, it had a lot to do. Even even Keynesians were surprised by the strength of private investment after World War II. Uh, didn't expect it. And they thought it was going to need to be propped up by uh, fiscal policy in a way that it really wasn't. Um, you know, it was really runaway private investment that had a lot to do with it. And of course, that could have something to do with being confident that 
uh, the state was going to be a backstop in case mm-hmm. of recession, maybe built more confidence for private investment, etc. But it really was driven by private investment. And ironically, early Keynesian policy in the 50s, at least in a lot of places, and definitely in Australia, which is the case I'm most familiar with, but also I think in the US and elsewhere, uh, macroeconomic policy early on was actually often deployed for restraint. Like Keynesian policy was not doesn't necessarily mean stimulus, but often in that period meant hmm. restraint. So, so explain, explain, explain. Let's let's go back even uh, further. Give us a quick elevator speech in terms of what that exact uh, Keynesian policy was. What what was Keynes's prescription, um, and and how did it manifest in the actual economy in the way that that you're talking in terms of being private driven rather than uh, public driven? Keynes himself, you know, he's. If you ask most people, you know, what's Keynesian policy, they'd probably be talking about. They'd probably be thinking about stimulus in terms of fiscal policy mostly they'd be thinking in terms of the welfare state uh he famously said that uh, the state should hire people to dig a hole and then fill it back up again and that would that would in yeah. a sense uh, produce the kind of uh state driven uh, uh uh demand uh that that would, would yeah i mean i think he said you know that would be i think what he meant really was that would be better than not doing it but of course better still would be hiring them to do something useful. Uh, but digging holes will at least take care of the employment aspect. That was a classic troll by, uh, by Keynes. That was Keynes yeah. trolling uh, at, the, yeah. at that time. But in the general theory, I mean, he, he doesn't focus on fiscal policy much at all. He definitely didn't focus on welfare state policies. He was mostly focusing on monetary policy, so uh, cheap money more mm-hmm. than anything else. But of course, you know, you can, fiscal policy can fits in. You can understand it in the terms that Keynes set out in the general theory. Um, and it's hard for us to realize this today, but there wasn't really a lot in the way of macroeconomic policy, macroeconomic strategy before Keynes mm, yeah. at all. Yeah. Uh, you had monetary policy, but monetary policy, you know, at least up until the 20s, tended to be focused on maintaining the gold standard. Macroeconomic policy really is a post-World War II thing. And like I said, it was, it was actually deployed for restraint as much as it was deployed for stimulus in, in the 50s and in the 60s in a lot of places. Yeah, just to refine that argument, you argue in your uh, a recent piece in Jacobin called The Keynesian Counter-Revolution. It's in, in, in part at least a, a review of a, a recent book by Jeff Mann on Keynes called In the Long Run, We Are All Dead, which is a – uh, popular uh, Keynesian, Keynesianism, uh, Keynesian, a line from Keynes. And you argue, in, in essence, uh, through man, you might say, that Keynes is in some senses kind of like uh, is viewed as the the inventor of modernity in terms of economics and and in the way that that's, that's framed. Uh, do you agree with man there? I mean, a lot of us will know that, you I mean, your, mac- your macroeconomics textbooks are, are not written by Austrian uh, economists. <laughs> they're, they're written, I mean, classically, yeah. they're written by Keynesian people who saw the, the economy in, in broad strokes and in long hauls and things like that. Look, I absolutely think that uh, Keynes left a lasting mark on economics. And what, you know, to the extent there was a counter-revolution in the 70s against Keynes, I think that can really be overstated. I think um, the way that policymakers, certainly at central banks uh, and in treasuries, the way that economists there think about it is very much still Keynesian in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the, the focus on uh, effective demand has never gone away. 
you can't argue. I mean, people do, I think, on quite good, you know, history of economics grounds that if Keynes hadn't existed, these ideas would have come into economics by other channels. And I definitely mm -hmm. think that's the case. We shouldn't overstate this sort of great man theory of economics. But I think that macroeconomics, once it was introduced, uh, was here to stay. So I disagree with people who would say, you know, talk about neoliberalism as kind of a, an overthrow of Keynesianism, a return to pre-Keynesianism. I don't think that's true at all. I think macroeconomics is still very much a part of what the state does. And even though often macroeconomics means a macroeconomics of restraint, I don't think that's so different from how it was in the 50s and 60s. I think that a lot of people misremember or don't, don't actually know too much about the, the economic history of that period. But macroeconomics has always had two sides, a stimulus side when necessary and also a restraint side. Yeah, so talk, talk, talk to me about the restraint part, because the Keynesian economic policy that most of us are familiar with are probably another troll of his. Please correct me if, if, I, if this isn't an integral part of his general theory, because I'm sure it's not. But he once joked about dropping money from helicopters as well, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Or, or, or a prominent Keynesian? I think that, 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 that's a Milton Friedman line. I think but that, that, that was a sort of, was that a, was that a, a kind of a, a troll on, an attempted troll on Keynes or, or what? I don't, I don't remember in any case. I, I think, you know, if I remember rightly, it's actually, it was a way of, uh, it was actually within an economic model. So Friedman was trying to say money drops from helicopters because he didn't want to think, he wanted to isolate the, you know, addition of money into people's pockets. He wanted to isolate it from fiscal uh, policy. He I wanted see, to isolate it. So it was actually, you know, it's been interpreted in that way, but it was actually Friedman so trying to- trying to think of a way of injecting money without any uh, context. You know, there are so few lines, oh, as a side note, there's so few lines from economists that really are like, A, like repeatable or even like, you know, relatable to, to, to normal people. But isn't it funny now that <laughs> I'll add that one to the list of this, but it's like the, the three or four that are out there almost universally misunderstood. Like, right, like Keynes' Keynes's yeah. whole thing, yeah, like yeah, I had to yeah. correct somebody just the other day to be a pedant the way that I am. Keynes' whole, uh, you know, line about in the long run, we're all dead. That doesn't mean that like, that's not a cynical argument. That's not like, well, you know, whatever, in the long run, no. we're all dead. It's, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> the opposite. Yeah, yeah. No, he was trying to say, uh, yeah, you, you know, you do want to focus on the short run. Yeah, the short run does matter because, yeah, if you just let the economy adjust exactly. itself, well, we'll all just go to hell in the long term, uh, you know. Uh, it's, yeah, it's funny how anyway, exactly. whatever, these, these little... I mean, uh, it's ironic. I mean, the, the, the helicopter money, just to say one more yeah, thing about sure. it. Of course, it, didn't actually, it doesn't actually work, you know, because it, to, to isolate the injection of money because if people did find money dropped from helicopters, that is a windfall. You know, they probably are going to be doing something different with that money than they would have, you know, came from a bit of overtime or, work and or whatever. Likely uh, if, if it was dropped yeah, on most exactly. parts of the world and rightfully so I should say rightfully, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. We respect sex workers here on Dead Pundit Society. Uh, so <laughs> back to the back to the topic at hand. Keynes uh, is often attributed to the kind of uh, the um, injection of of you know of of, of uh, currency, money, capital into the economy by the state. Uh, demand, I should say, maybe more accurately, the injection yes. of demand by the state. Um, but that's just one side of the that's just one side of the coin, right? You're talking about restraint. Keynes himself was writing in the depression, right? He was writing at a time of severe unemployment, severely deficient demand. So it's you know it's not hard to understand why he'd be focusing on that aspect of it. Um, but the other side is in there too. I mean, there is a chapter 
in the general theory on price increases. It's not true that he neglected uh, the inflationary side of things as yeah. well. So, so what does Keynesian restraint look like? Because this is the side of the this is the side of Keynes that uh, you know I like most people uh, aren't quite as familiar with. Well, it's it's fairly symmetrical, right? So if stimulus is about cheap money, counter stimulus or disinflationary po- policy is about mm-hmm. expensive money. It's about uh, budget. Austerity, I guess. What does what does expensive money look wow. like to the to the neophyte uh, to the layman? Explain that to us. Uh, high interest okay. rates. That's all. High interest rates. You know, I guess the the, the the biggest example from recent history. I mean, talking about the last few decades, mm-hmm. the Volcker shock mm-hmm. in the U.S. At, at, in the end of the seventies, very high interest rates, uh, choking off investment. But that was already going on. I mean, you could, you you see in restrictive monetary policy in the U.S. in the fifties. You see it in Australia. Uh, in the sure, 50s. when the economy gets overheated uh, by the judgments exactly. of uh, central bankers and so on, uh, they will raise interest yep. rates to try to uh, slow things down a little bit. Uh, the Volcker shock, for exactly. those who aren't familiar, was uh, initiated in what 1981 by Fed Chair Paul Volcker, um, <laughs> who was, by the way, installed by Democratic President Jimmy Carter to break the back of inflation and stagflation, which is this contradictory appearance of economic stagnation and in, uh, monetary inflation. Uh, which kind of had people confounded. And Volcker came in and rose, let interest rates uh, rise as high as the market would take them. It broke the back of labor and, uh, you know, in essence also broke the inflationary spiral that was going on there. So just does that, that sound right to you? I just wanted to kind of give the, the background. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it, it started a little bit earlier. I think it started to right at the end of the 70s. Right, right. But yeah, but I guess the point I'm making is that uh, – the Volcker shock is, you know, the big example that we're all familiar with is kind of a transformational moment. But Keynesian restraint was already happening in the 50s and 60s. It's not the case that uh, macroeconomic policymakers were ignoring inflation. They were actually very, very concerned about inflation in the 50s because you've got to remember that um, what they called creeping inflation or, you know, even low steady inflation was actually a new thing at the time. I mean, in, in, under the gold standard, if you had inflation, it would sooner or later be followed by hmm. deflation, price, you know, because if, if you were staying on the gold standard. Once the gold standard was broken uh, you know, by World War I, and then again in the 30s after restoration, uh, people had to get used to persistent inflation, stuff that even, you know, nowadays, 2 3% a year inflation is nothing to hmm. worry about. But back in the day, they were they were worried about it. That's very interesting because nowadays, you know, folks just grow up, and you know, when you hear how much your parents, uh, you know, paid for their car or their first house or whatever they paid for back in the fifties or sixties, you know, we we just sort of know like, oh, that was so cheap back then compared to today's money. Inflation is just kind of programmed into our culture. It's something that we, yeah. we accept and we understand on, on a very kind of like visceral, you know, commonsensical level, but it wasn't always the case. Yeah. And of course, I mean, the seventies were something different, right? The seventies, the stagflationary crisis. I mean, that was very high inflation. Um, but I think that what really changed in the seventies in terms of macroeconomic policy is not so much a switch from stimulus to restraint, but more that, uh, Restraint was harsher. Restraint because of the the contradictions, I guess, between working class power in the labor market and inflation had become the, had become more intense, more more problematic for policy. 
and therefore the restraint became uh, harsher. It was felt more. Right. In essence, uh, the labor unions were able to drive up wages with uh, intense, uh, you know, uh, repetitive strike action throughout the 1970s. Loose monetary policy was kind of uh, uh, greasing the wheels of inflation, if you will. Uh, it was uh, correct. What's your take on this? But it was uh, suspected that uh, loose money uh, was there to ensure the reelection of, of various presidents throughout the 1960s and 70s. Right? If if, if money's flowing, yeah, and, and things are in the in, in the times are. Uh, are good, you know, presidents are far more likely to be reelected and that may have led to inflation. What's your take on that? Yeah. Okay. This is very interesting. I mean, I think that the U.S. has a very different mythology around this than, Mm. say, the U.K. or Australia, because I think the American situation was quite different. And I guess you guys aren't used to thinking about America being different because America is what you're used to. It's all we know. It's all we care about. Let's be clear about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's all that exists. But from my perspective, it's idiosyncratic, right? I mean... The America didn't have uh, full employment in the sense that the UK had it or Australia had it or a lot of Western Europe had it. Uh, unemployment in the US never really got much below 4%, whereas in the UK we're talking, or Australia, Western Europe, Japan, we're talking unemployment below mm-hmm. 2%. So that break is not, you, you know, not felt as strongly in the US. But certainly Keynesian policy became politically associated in the 60s with um, JFK, right. right? Linda B. Johnson and the advisors, Samuelson and Solo. Right, right. Great society programs. The, the idea that it was the government's responsibility to ensure mass purchasing power to the working and middle class and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And of course, you have, you have much stronger uh, political right in the U.S. who are able to sort of paint it like that. So, you know, the, the Phillips curve, you know, the Phillips curve, if you you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, explain it. Explain it to the audience. The idea that there's a, a relationship between unemployment mm-hmm. and inflation, where if I'm, the lower unemployment is, the higher inflation is going to be, uh, and vice versa. Um, in the U.S., the Phillips curve, this, the idea of exploiting a trade-off between unemployment and inflation, the idea that you would deliberately accept a higher inflation rate in order to bring unemployment down. That was an, you know, people were accusing Kennedy and his advisors of promoting that idea, right? It was an idea that the Phillips curve was something of the left. In the UK or in Australia, it was the opposite. This idea of a trade-off between inflation and unemployment was a right-wing thing Hmm. because they said, you know, unemployment's actually too low. We want to bring unemployment up to bring inflation down. Interesting. So it's in the U.S. in the 60s that the the idea of a Phillips curve is a liberal thing. Interesting, interesting. Um, And full employment in terms of being achieved, this is kind of where I want to move uh, to to the last half of the show. This is all really interesting context, and I learned some stuff here about Keynesian restraint and all that kind of stuff. So this was fun. But let's move to the more kind of like politically substantive stuff here. And I think this is we're we're right on track because – particularly in this contrast between the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia, for example. Uh, Some folks, some of my listeners will know the history of, uh, say, post-1950 labor strategy, you might say, which by this time, uh, Mm -hmm. Taft-Hartley had already passed in 1947, which uh, produced all kinds of setbacks for uh, radical militant trade unionism in the United States. 
I'm going to be doing a show uh, talking about Taft-Hartley pretty soon, uh, so folks should look out for that. But Taft-Hartley had decimated the militancy of labor unions. By by then, uh, there was this kind of uh, accord between uh, the automobile unions and the manufacturers in Detroit, the, the Treaty of Detroit, as it was known. Uh, and so the labor union really bought into this kind of corporatist model in the U.S. Uh, it was kind of opposed to strike action. They wanted to sort of, uh, you know, sit at the bargaining table and shake hands and, and they tied uh, wage increases to productivity increases. And that was kind of uh, the way that full employment, at least American style, 4% quote unquote full employment was to be pursued. The story was quite different in the UK and, and Australia in terms of the political atmosphere in that moment. Can it kind of spell that out for us and contrast that for us? Yeah, okay. the Australian situation is the, mo- the one I'm most familiar with. I've got a, a re- had a book on that uh, came out a couple of years ago. So in Australia is unusual in the UK to a lesser extent in having had uh, centralized bargaining, right? So we had arbitration courts in early on in the 20th century. Um, by the 50s and 60s, you have uh, awards, right? So central central sort of, I guess, their minimums, right, for particular industries would be set by courts and employers would come to the court, uh, union would come to the court and the government would have a representative and they would argue their case, right? Um, and so that was a very different situation from... Hmm. say in the US where wages are, are left to the market. Right. And backdoor dealings. I guess in Australia that was done in public in the courts. In the US it was done in behind closed doors and smoke filled rooms with the uh, union uh, ex- executives and and the uh, you know the corporate executives you might say. Right. Yeah, I mean yeah, when I say left to the market, I definitely don't think you know it's there's a lot of negotiation and stuff going on, but it's not happening in an official, you know, central location. It's not yeah argued out and a judge doesn't make mm-hmm. a ruling on it as mm-hmm. happened in the US. I mean, sorry, in Australia. Interesting. And so there was a hope that Australia, you know, policymakers could use the arbitration system macroeconomically to keep full employment consistent with price stability. And you actually, if you read a lot of economists at the time, not just Australian economists, but, uh, you know, big name international economists, people like Jan Tinbergen, who won the first Nobel Prize um, in economics, he always argued that policy, macroeconomic policy, needed three levers. Right? It didn't just need mac- it didn't just need monetary policy and fiscal policy. It also needed to control the wage, hmm. because otherwise, if you got too close to full employment, the wage would have a tendency to rise and either eat into profits or, more likely, generate inflation. So policy had to control the wage. So in Australia and in the UK, to a lesser extent, uh, there was a hope that the court could be used or, you know, centralized bargaining could be used as that branch of policy. Um, But it didn't quite work out like that because for one thing, it was a judicial part of the state. Policymakers didn't get to say what the wages would be. They had to go and argue it. Based on what, based on what, uh, like legal structure apparatus or whatever, right? I mean, what what were the judges, uh, you know, using as a precedent, uh, legal precedent? Well, a very long history of that court of those courts mm, okay. um, existing in Australia. It's fascinating history. I, I know nothing about this being a you know an American only uh, focused on you know uh, American centric uh, history as as we are here. So, you know, 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, before you can really track the emergence of macroeconomic discourse into this stuff because before World War II, uh, it was all based around, you know, two principles, right? Living standards and so maintaining working class living standards was one of the basic principles of the court. And the second one was capacity to pay written into the law, right? So firms' capacity to pay uh, workers' living standards were the two main principles. In the 50s, you start to have macroeconomic arguments coming in. So they redefined capacity to pay in a macroeconomic sense. Uh, so instead instead uh, of like, say, what sounded almost like a bankruptcy court, for God's sakes, uh, you, you yeah. turn into more kind of like a policy calculation. Is, is, would that be? Yeah. A- so you get arguments like not do firms individually have the money to make payments, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but does the economy as a whole have a capacity to increase wages uh, without triggering inflation? I see. Interesting. And the courts sort of accepted that for a while. Um but they found that they couldn't because as soon as, you know, the trouble is in the, in the Australian economy, it was so at the time so concentrated on wool. The Korean War comes along, you know, raises wool prices by like eight times or whatever. That causes a huge inflationary dynamic within the Australian economy. And of course, they had to be passed through into wages or else workers' living standards were going to fall. And to the extent that the court was able to restrain wages, they found that uh, enterprise bargaining outside of the official process would start to push wages up, you know, and people would, gra- you know, the, the courts would gradually lose control of wages. So to bring it back to stuff that your listeners are going to be interested in, because I don't think anybody's interested in the, the ins and outs of Australian uh, wage setting in the 50s. Hey, some of my best the listeners is- are Australian, actually. I got a lot <laughs> of solid, solid people down there. Uh, but the point is that the, 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 this stuff plays out the tensions at the heart of full employment yeah, yeah, in a particular yeah. setting. So these tensions were played out in one way or another everywhere. Yeah, right, right. And it, with, that, with those transformations that everyone were kind of experiencing in their own unique settings uh, in terms of the history of global capitalism, the way that it was shifting post-war, uh, yeah. you might say. So yeah, so let's talk about full employment. So full employment was a, a kind of a, a, a certain kind of full employment was a policy preference that emerged out of this uh, post-war labor accord that happened between the labor bureaucracy and uh, capital, uh, which was a kind of go-along, get-along, kind of neutered, uh, non-militant trade union strategy that that linked uh, wage growth with uh, productivity growth, growth across mm-hmm. the greater market, you might say. Now, that has infamously uh, been uh, delinked. <laughs> wage growth mm. uh, no longer even comes close to keeping up with uh, productivity growth in the economy. Especially in the U.S. Yeah, economists like uh, Richard Wolff uh, really uh, brings this into his uh, analysis as a really kind of central feature in the transformations yeah. that have happened at following the 1970s. I Absolutely. learned everything I know about that gap from Richard Wolff uh, during the, the great recession in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was one strategy and that's kind of the birth of that strategy. Right. And at the, at the time when that, that wage growth and productivity growth becomes delinked, labor had already disavowed more militant strike tactics. And so they didn't have any tools in their toolbox really to kind of, to kind of fight that. And actually when they did pursue it in the 1970s in the United States, it just kept pushing up, uh, inflation. Uh, you know, uh, wage growth 
would uh, you know sort of uh, keep up with inflation. So this is where Koleski comes into it. What did what was? I'm kind of rambling right now. This is a really complex uh, discussion we're having here. I'm enjoying <laughs> the hell out of this. What did Koleski have to say about full employment? All right. So what can we take away from him? Koleski, you know, the paper everyone knows is Koleski, 1943, the political aspects of full employment. Um, and I guess we got to remember at the start, like he's making predictions, right? He's not talking from experience of full employment, except I guess on, you know, what, uh, you know, mobilization for war, full employment. But he doesn't have experience, obviously, at that point of what was going to happen. He's making predictions. Hmm. And he thought uh, that full employment would be economically good for firms, for capital, as well as for labor, because... Huh. Um, Firms would be facing higher demand, they would have higher capacity utilization, uh, and profits would be higher, right? Because, you know, unemployment, unused capacity is dead weight for firms uh, as much as it is for labor, as much as it's bad for labor. However, right, right. he thought that full employment was going to run into political problems. Um, so it would be economically sustainable, but economically sustainable, but politically not sustainable, um, for a whole bunch of reasons, mainly because capital would start to realize that government was no longer dependent on it, on its investment. You know, if private investment was deficient, the government could uh, invest uh, on its own, uh, make up, you know, take up the slack. And that would, you know, they'd be tempted out of the narrow bounds of, you know, infrastructure, roads, schools, hospitals, etc., and potentially start expanding onto capital's territory. But even more frightening, uh, employees, workers would no longer be scared of losing their jobs. Uh, so, and that, of course, is crucial for discipline within a firm. So yeah. the boss would be undermined. The working class would become more uh, class conscious. He says discipline in the factories would uh, break down. You raise uh, the meme of old economy Stephen. Yeah, well, I mean, which I got is a that creation up. of uh, Chris Mizano. Yeah, I uh, don't know if he created the meme, but he was the guy that brought it to my attention. Anyway, he he wielded it. So it's yeah. like uh, scumbag Steve. Yeah. Well, this yeah, is yeah. old economy Stephen. Yeah. And uh, you you quote uh, Chris Mizano in uh, your piece that you wrote for Jacobin called "Jobs for All." Yeah. I'll link to all of these in the show notes for people. Uh, you link to Chris uh, saying, old, explaining old economy Stephen. He says, Stephen can tell his boss to shove it, walk out, and get hired at the factory across the street. If he gets fired at the new job, that's no big deal. He'll just pick up a new one on the way home. If he wants a raise, he can just walk into the boss's, boss's office and demand one. He doesn't have to bow before anyone to make ends meet. Exactly, and uh, yeah, so yeah, that's old economy, Stephen. That that's the uh, one of the the things you're trying to talk exactly. about. Uh, and Kolesky was uh, full employment was right, right? That full employment did kind of have that uh, effect. At least you know it had the potential for that. It, it had to develop. It had to develop culturally, etc. It was really only a, towards the end of the '60s that you start to see that kind of wage breakout, etc. But I think you know where I would revise Kolesky is on. His, the boundaries that he draws between economic sustainability and political sustainability, because I think ultimately uh, it was full employment's economic problems that killed it. Be and it's precisely because the stagflationary crisis turned into a political crisis. And I think if you look back at what Koletsky thought were going to be the preconditions of full employment, we start to understand that, right? Because he's, you know, his recipe included, uh, okay, 
interest on the national debt would be paid by a wealth tax. So instead of just paying interest to bondholders out of general taxation, rich people in general would be paying that subset of rich people who own bonds. Uh, he, would, he also said you'd need to uh, pay subsidies to firms facing higher wages. You would have to have a, a very high income tax. You'd have to have price controls. The public sector would have to expand substantially and you'd have, you need subsidies to private consumption and you need to right, control right. the wage. So all of these things, I mean, to me, those are not technical. Wage controls, price controls. These are not technical. The government yeah. producing subsidies uh, to, to firms uh, to continue paying the, this, these wages. And I mean, and, and, I mean, I think you just look at that on the face of it and you can see that certainly the left in the 1970s didn't have the stomach for that kind of political program in some senses. I mean, would you say that's correct? I mean, I, would, would that be the ultimate downfall of, of the left in, in the 1970s leading up to, say, the neoliberalism of, of Reagan and Thatcher and, and elsewhere and you know, otherwise in the Australian situation? Who was the, who was the equivalent of the Reagan and Thatcher in Australia? Well, that's a tricky question because it was a Labour government, right? I guess the obvious answer is Paul Keating. But I think things are a little bit different here again because I don't – look, I don't want to – I'll address your bigger question before getting derailed on. Yeah, the sorry, Australian I didn't mean to go into the weeds. I just wanted first. to. I wanted. To, I didn't want to leave out the Australians. Uh, the Australians. I'm just, I'm just worried uh, about boring the rest of your audience. But there's a lot you can say uh, about well. what happened in Australia. But anyway, so these are what Kolesky, you know, thought of as sort of technical adjustments or economic policies. They're really a complete politicization of the economy, right? And everything mm-hmm. once the state is doing all of this stuff, they all become subject to to politics. And I think that's an incredibly unstable state for capitalism to be in. And so when you get to the, 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 you know, the global wages break out of the late 60s, early 70s, when you've got the oil shocks and stuff going on, there were people aware of this. Like there were people making the case uh, that labor had to supplement its economic power in full employment conditions. It had to translate that into political power or conservatives would come to power and, you know, end full employment. And I, I am thinking of people like in the UK, uh, famous book by Glenn and Sutcliffe, famous at the time, and I think it's so famous now, British Workers and the Profit Squeeze. They pointed out in the UK, workers' wage gains were not being entirely eroded by inflation at that point. There were, inflation was kind of on the rise, but nominal wages were outpacing it. So the labor share was rising. But they said on its own, you know, that makes workers, you know, a little bit, you know, unions kind of comfortable with that, right? But if they didn't marry that to a more general socialist strategy, then they were very much at risk of the economic basis for that power being eroded or completely collapsing. And of course, that's what happened. Right. So let me see, see if I can of course, sort of spell that out to see if this is correct for the audience. So in a sense, then the labor movement was sort of benefiting and taking credit, resting on their laurels because they were benefiting and taking credit of dynamics that didn't flow from an expression of their actual power in society. Well, I think, you know, the way I see it, they had economic power. I would distinguish between economic and political power. They had power that comes from being in a tight labor market, right? So they have um, power to uh, have their demands expect that their demands will be met uh, for higher, you know, rapid wage growth. Um, you know, have, even having a say over uh, working conditions, um, resisting 
productivity drives, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they did have that power, but it rested on those, that sort of high demand, tight labor market condition that they couldn't take for granted. Right, I see. So there is so they had the power uh, uh, that that uh, <laughs> I'm trying to spell this out for myself and others. They had power that emerged from the economic conditions, but they didn't control the economic conditions exactly. themselves or have any kind of levers to 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 direct uh, those underlying dynamics that they were benefiting exactly. from. And so when those when those underlying dynamics shifted. Uh, you know, they were sort of left with their exactly. pants down. You know, they're sort of like, well, hell, we don't, we don't have any way to to bring this back or to 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 change uh, the direction of this thing. And so now we're we're no longer going to benefit from it. In fact, we're going to be disciplined uh, by these same dynamics that we were we were just sort of uh, exactly benefiting from. So so let's talk about what what that means politically for any kind of socialist strategy. What are those conditions uh, that they benefited from at that time? What let's let's play the counterfactual game. What might they have done differently in that moment? Uh, and how, how you know and, and, and we can draw this out into our present moment for say a Corbyn government that looks eminent, or perhaps a Sanders government, or or, or uh, I think the first thing is we're not at the stage of having those problems yet. I think there's a lot of room for, you know, full employment strategy can get a long way, but eventually it's going to start running into those problems. Uh, And of course, this is just one aspect of a broader left social democratic or socialist strategy. Um, Full employment, I think is, it's going to be a key pillar of that strategy, but obviously it's not the whole thing. Um, I think it's, it's important. It's an important aspect because I think, Workers need to have that economic power as part of the mix in order to drive our project where it needs to go. But there's kind of a chicken and egg problem, right? So labor has been extremely unpowerful over the last few decades. And that has a lot to do with the fact that policy keeps labor markets from getting too tight, right? You've got to maintain unemployment mm-hmm. at the, the Nairu or, or above so that labor markets don't get too tight so that you don't start, you know, inflation doesn't start taking off. Um, and that's kept labor fairly weak. And for, with all the consequences that that has for the left, which I think they're huge, right? Right. You spell out the Nairu. It's a non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. So that's kind of the mission of central banks and developed, uh, you know, uh, countries, capitalist countries across the world. If they see full employment sort of uh, accelerating, uh, they sort of jump in because the Nairu is is sort of off kilter. I mean, explain that. Explain that to folks. I don't think people quite understand the role that some of these institutions and policymakers have in actually like actively seeking to make their lives shittier. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not something, you know, no, no politician can come out and say uh, unemployment's getting too low, right? They're always saying, you know, they want to bring right. back jobs and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's definitely the case that, the, that policymakers, especially in central banks, definitely believe that unemployment can be too low. Um, so the idea, I mean, Friedman called it the natural rate of unemployment, this rate at which if you got below it, inflation would not just rise, but accelerate. You know, as long as you keep unemployment below that rate, inflation's going to get higher and higher and higher and higher. Um, but of course, natural has too much baggage. So the, the, the successor, I mean, economists preferred to call it, you know, this awful term, the NIRU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, which is just 
saying natural, right? But in a very literal way, right? Saying exactly spelling out the meaning. So that it doesn't come with that. Of, of what they think natural means, which it turns out maybe not to exactly be the case. But anyway, that's that's a whole <laughs> yeah. different story. I mean, even Friedman didn't think that it was exogenous. He didn't think it was, you know, we take it for given. He thought institutional uh, factors could change where the Nairu or the natural rate was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Milton Friedman mm-hmm. thought, you know, the, the natural rate would be higher if, say, uh, unions were stronger, if the if labor market regulation was too tight, etc., um, of course, that doesn't seem to be true because, you know, the, the Nairu seem the natural rates seem to be a lot lower in Australia or the UK in the 50s and 60s, right, below 2%. And yet those were very highly regulated labor markets. Right. Well, you know, uh, it's okay. We'll, we'll go in and uh, kill Salvador Allende <laughs> and uh, slaughter, jail, murder, and maim, and torture uh, millions of Chileans uh, to prove Milton Freeman uh, well, was ultimately wrong. But anyway, uh, I always just got to bring up Pinochet every time I bring up these Fair scumbag enough. bastards because they're just not, they're not these, you know, economic gurus who sat in their little seminar rooms and their cushy offices at the University of Chicago. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sociopaths. And I like to raise that as, as often Absolutely. as I can. So, uh, <laughs> this is not just theory, people. This has, you know, very Absolutely. direct and immediate impacts on people. I mean, right lives. now we're in a, a weird period, like in the U.S., and elsewhere, because unemployment, we're in a situation where unemployment is getting pretty low, getting even below estimates of the Nauru, uh, and yet you're not seeing big wage increases that you might expect. Uh, and this is something people talk about a lot in Australia, and I think you know a lot of people talking about it in the U.S. as well. I mean, the Nauru has never been that um, reliable. Uh, it tends to be, you know, they, they tend to overestimate it in the 90, late 90s. They were surprised by it. Um, so it's not something to take for granted. At the moment, you even have people like Janet Yellen saying, you know, wages, it would be good if wages would take off a little bit more. But in general, mm-hmm. for the last mm-hmm. few decades, uh, the role of monetary policy has been to keep labor markets from getting too tight. So let's go back to the 1970s when uh, the left and the labor left faced uh, some profound defeats in uh, you know capitalist countries across advanced capitalist countries across the world let's talk counterfactuals how could they have gotten out of this bind uh, they were benefiting from uh, relative full employment and along with that you know came the the uh, positive impacts of old economy steven and uh, high wages and reliable uh, relationship between wage growth and productivity growth and all of that stuff but when uh, you know, the, the music stopped and everyone was uh, wrestling for a chair in this uh, game of musical chairs. Uh, you know, la- labor was left out. What could they have done different? What kind of political and economic strategies uh, might they have fought for? Um, again, these are big ifs, yeah. right? We're assuming that the agency was, was there. We were assuming that they had the capacity. We were assuming that the labor leadership had the stomach or the ideological inclination for these types of uh, politics, but let's just assume all those things to be true. What are the what are the strategies there uh, to stave off uh, this defeat in the 1970s? Yeah, well, look, obviously it would have been uh, politically extremely difficult to do any of this stuff. And I think, you know, I don't really think there was any chance that it ever would have happened given political conditions of the time. But I think, you know, now we want to learn those lessons, right? So that we'll be ready for it. 
Now, that's a completely different discussion. I think it's an important one to have, too, by the way. I'm going to have a show on that at some point, the kind of political defeats that happened that pre- prevented folks from doing exactly what you just uh, sort of laid out. There. Well, I mean, Leo Panitch, who you've already had on, I think he, you know, he's the expert on what yeah. happened in the UK around that time. Uh, and I, you know, he, I've learned a lot from his take on this stuff. But I think we would have had to have done the, the kinds of things Koletsky had said all along were preconditions for full employment. We would actually... I think especially need um, income controls. And I think that's a very difficult thing hmm. for the labor movement because at the time that they're very powerful, having centralized bargaining, having wage controls, you're basically saying tone it down, pull it back, sacrifice this economic power that you have, etc. So, And I think in Australia, we saw this kind of play out in a way in what was called the Accords in Australia in the 80s. And we can see how badly this could go wrong. So this is a very risky strategy. Um, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think in le- you're sort of you're sort of pushing austerity on behalf of a, a more grand strategy, perhaps. It's not austerity. Okay. It's uh, I guess it's it's transitional, right? You've got to uh, mm-hmm. okay. I think, it, but it's got to be. They've got to demand that it's put in in place only with controls on profits, controls on prices as well. Right. I see. I, I think I that see. The, so. You're trading uh, sort of uh, economic power for political power. You're trading maybe say a private wage for increased public wealth. Would that be an accurate? Yeah. Thing? I mean, I, 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 something I, along I, I those lines. To an extent, you're not. I don't think that if you really could get to grips with you know rising nominal wages, rising nominal prices, you're not. We're not asking workers to sacrifice anything in real terms, right? It's more about um, mm. taming price and the, the price wage inflation cycle. Uh, and of course in Australia, there was some of that public private trade-offs, right? So they had, you know, um, Medicare, for example, uh, you know, our public health care system was kind of put into the mix there as a kind of trade-off for wage restraint. So there's all these different ways that it can be done, but I think that it's critical though, uh, for for this to work, it would have to be centralized, right? It would have because mostly, I mean, workers are not just comparing themselves with what's happening with prices, etc. That they, workers in particular areas of the economy are often concerned with relative wages relative to other areas. So it's got to be it's got to be centralized, or it's not going to work at all. And I think that's a huge ask for a country like the U.S., where you don't have any history of that kind of centralized yeah. bargaining. Um, but I think right, that right, for sure, for sure, you know. So many economists back in the in the fifties recognized that you needed to have incomes controls to make full employment work. And let me be clear now, because I, I want to say because I mean a lot of people are going to jump jump on me for saying this kind of thing, especially with the example which I think is largely a negative example of this kind of strategy in Australia in the eighties. I think this can only be transitional, right? I don't think that it's likely to be sustainable for capitalism, I think, because it's, you're effectively mm-hmm. politicizing distribution. Um, you're, and once you politicize it, I mean, once, it's, once there's people making decisions about how much you earn, whether you're a worker, whether you're a, um, a rentier, a, ca- a wealthy person, a capitalist or whatever, you've now got someone to argue with, right? Where if it, as if it's left to the market, there's no one really to blame. Once you politicize this stuff, I think it becomes you're in a very different political situation. Uh, and I think it's very hard to know in advance where that's going to go. 
but I think that we have to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to learn the lessons of what happened in the seventies and eighties. And I think have to be ready to take this, uh, take this path. And I think once you get to that point, I think it's a very unstable position for capitalism. I think, I mean, this is why I'm, I'm a socialist, right? I'm not a social Democrat, even though I think, I guess I'm talking about a kind of social democratic path towards socialism. I don't think that full employment social democratic situation is, is going to be sustainable because you've politicized everything. You've either got to take that to its necessary conclusion or it's going to be uh, broken and washed away again. Right. I mean, we're, we're really kind of covering uh, a lot of ground here. There are a lot of underlying debates, which you're, I'm sure you're far more aware, aware of than, than I am, uh, but a lot of uh, debates in dusty Marxian economics uh, about uh, the causes of, of the 1970s and neoliberalism and all the rest of it in terms of, of course, the Sutcliffe kind of wage uh, wage squeeze thesis is one that says, and of course, Leo Panitch has developed this more kind of politically, I would say, this says that, you know, once you're right, right? Once you set up this this highly politicized uh, politicization of the economy, you've got to be ready to take the next step because it's a very tenuous and fraught kind of uh, place to be in. And if you don't have the stomach for it or you don't have the capacity for it, rather, you're going to see uh, uh, capital clamp down uh, uh, in, in dis- with, with disastrous consequences, yeah. like you saw with the Volcker shock in the U.S., like you saw, uh, like you mentioned, the 1980s in Australia and elsewhere. I mean, I think the thing, I mean, the big issue is it's, however it goes wrong, there's going to be lots of openings for um, conservative forces to, you know, make electoral, you know, build an electoral alternative. And I think that's the real struggle mm-hmm. for democratic socialism is that... Um, this is all going to be playing out amid periodic elections, and there's so many different ways it can go wrong. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, it's probably going to be, it probably won't happen in one big go. It'll probably be going back and forth. All right. There's a certain kind of volatility there that's, that's going to happen that doesn't quite survive the throw the bums out mentality of, you know, normal and regular cyclical exactly. elections. Whenever that happens, I mean, he's got to be part of it. He's got to be building, you know, putting things in pretty early that people are going to be very grateful for, right? Like, I mean, in the U.S., you know, things like Medicare for all, that kind of thing. Now, you guys aren't barbarians down in Australia. You, know, <laughs> you, you, already, you already basically have that. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, in, and beyond that, most of, we've got a big, you know, a lot of the hospitals are actually public as well. So it's not, goes beyond uh, single payer. Nationalized, yeah. 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 So this is good stuff. I mean, if, I hope people are, are following along. I know we're kind of in the weeds now, and, and really we're talking in kind of abstract terms, right? There isn't there isn't any kind of one ready-made strategy, right? We can't just kind of write a roadmap, you know, to talk about exactly this is what we're going to do with finance, and this is exactly how we're going to respond uh, when capital, you know, when there's a capital strike or when uh, these kind of like uh, quote-unquote grassroots uh, conservative forces, you know, emerge to try to undermine our political or electoral, uh, you know, hegemony. Yeah. There's just no one way to do this, but but there are certain kind of like uh, logical dynamics, I think, that we can kind of expect and tease out. Yeah, I guess that's all I'm saying is that we got to be ready for the, for that kind of a thing. I, I don't think it can be mapped out in advance. And how it works politically is going to be really different from country to country. I mean, in the States, mm-hmm. well, you know, like the old joke goes, how do we get, how do I get there? I wouldn't start from 
where you are in the U.S. If it was up to me, <laughs> I think it's going to be uh, much tougher with the kinds of institutions that you've got there. And I don't, I honestly don't know. Um, but this is the kind of thing, the kind of problem that you got to, that we've got to take seriously. That's all yeah. I'm saying. It'll take for sure. It'll take a massive constitutional challenge. But remember, the early the, the New Deal programs required uh, immense constitutional challenges to 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 reformulate uh, the nature of 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 the the labor contract itself to say that the government can intervene and, and set various limits and floors and and all and all those types of things. I mean, it's this is not unprecedented, but 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 it. But it does require quite a battle. That's why I wanted to have you on the show, and I'm really glad we had this discussion. Uh, I feel like there's so many things that we can talk about that I wanted to talk about. We didn't quite get there. But I think just putting this on people's radar screen right, is so important. And if you didn't understand a word that we said, at least now you know that, like, hey, this is a thing. Right? Mm. I need to read up on this. This is a really important and crucial aspect of socialist transformation and it's one that socialists need to start talking about and educating ourselves about. If 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 our generation and the generations to come are going to be the ones uh, to to handle these uh, sticky situations, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of think I, I kind of think that we want a, a, a cadre of what you might call anti wonks, yeah, right? Of, uh, people who, uh, I guess you know, I'm thinking of people like Matt Brunig, who is kind of a natural at that. Uh, it's not wonkery because it's not uh, technocratic, right? You've got to realize that um, you've got to be conscious of the, the social contradictions. Uh, and it's not as easy as, you know, putting in the perfect plan. But at the same time, you also have to recognize that the economic system has, a cer- has certain logics that we can't wish away. And we can't uh, deal with just through the perfect plan or the perfect... Um, all the political will in the world. Right. I mean, it's, 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 that's interesting the way you frame it. I love that because it really does bring into relationship the kind of technocratic wonkery that you see from, you know, Vox.com here in the U S these kind of technocratic centrists, uh, the, the, in, in the occupying the extreme center these days who just think that you can have the right kind of fix uh, to our problems. And even if they're good natured liberals, you know, who, who, I don't know, at least, you know, <laughs> allegedly want good things for people in the world. You know, they still imagine that if we just have this right policy and we just implement it in the right way. And I could even look at somebody like a Dean Baker, oh, yeah. who's, I think a fantastic, you know, progressive economist in a lot of respects, but he really does fall prey to this idea that, that he, you know, that the smartest guys in the room uh, should just be obeyed, and we could just imp- implement these policies, and and and, and things would go, uh, you know, swimmingly at that point. But th- you yeah. see the connection that you just drew out between the ultra left as well. So maybe say a little bit more about that in terms of like this wonkery manifests uh, in this kind of ultra leftism, this full luxury communism. In, in some yeah, ways. I mean, I guess it comes back to what I was saying before about even like 1917, it, it, taking state power doesn't. Um, on its own, transform the economic system. Uh, so you got to be ready for it. It's going to play out one way or another. These issues are going to be um, manifesting themselves, and they can manifest themselves in a lot of different ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to not pay attention to this stuff, to say, you know, or to um, focus on the 
you know, call it reformism or whatever and just say, you know, really, we just need to be out in the streets or, you know, take power in the streets and that'll force the hand of whoever's in government, whatever. I mean, I don't think that's enough, unfortunately. I, I think that uh, I'm very influenced in, in political strategy by a lot of the, the, the British New Left, right? And I think uh, E.P. Thompson, of all people, I think has had a good um, take on this stuff in a, you know, a couple of pieces he wrote way back in the early 50s, I think, in what became New Left Review, one of those proto-New Left Reviews. Was it? Is uh, probably the yeah, new reasoner, new reasoner that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's called On Revolution, I think. And he, I think he painted a really good picture of what um, a revolution might look like in uh, our kind of society. And I don't think our kind of society in these crucial ways is that far different from how it was in the 50s. But he's talking about... Um, how it would play out. It's not, it's very different from say, you know, Bernsteinism, like evolutionary sort of slow and steady progress. Um, but it happens. Parliament is quite an important venue, not the only venue, but he kind of portrays revolution as being, you know, partly something like Corbynism gets into power. It's resistant in a lot of ways, economically and politically by the right, by capital. Uh, there's reversals, but you know, the, the, the Socialist Party is able to make appeals to people on, on the basis of things, you know, like the healthcare system, I think, might be one of his examples. So it kind of goes back and forth. That's kind of how I see these things happening. It's not, uh, there's definitely got to be ruptural political breaks, but those ruptures are never absolute. You're always inheriting. I mean, the, the basic economic infrastructure of society is pretty difficult to transform all at once. Right, right. I mean, this sort of uh, insurrectionary, uh, you know, impulse I think that exists on the far left is, is I think, in in many senses, then, and uh, it's a defense mechanism. Uh, it, it it it's a defense mechanism meant to uh, distract us from the fact that we don't even know what the hell to do in these much smaller flashpoints. Forget about like a radical break with capital. Like we don't even know what to do, uh, say, in the crisis of the nineteen seventies. Uh, you know, in terms of in terms of that, and so uh, that's fine. I'll, I'll have EP Thompson on the show next week, and uh, we'll talk about his essay. Uh, zombie EP Thompson is going to be on the Dead Planet Society. Uh, any case, uh, we've talked about a lot of really good stuff. I, I've enjoyed the hell out of this. I, you know, I, I always say, you know, the Dead Planet Society. I, I, I try to be a rigorous show, but it's also it's really it's not an easy podcast to go on as a guest, and I try to do that on purpose. Uh, because I think opening up the conversation and asking big questions is really the way to dig in and uh, into the into the most kind of like uh, the essential, the, the essence of the matter at hand. And, and we've really done that. So, uh, Mike Beggs, thanks again for joining us on the Dead Pundit Society. Everybody stay tuned. Yeah, we're going to do a B-side. Uh, don't miss it. We're going to be talking about economics for regular ass people. So, Mike Beggs, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that is the conclusion of this week's episode with Mike Beggs. Thanks again to Mike. He's an instructor and researcher down at the University of Sydney, down under in Australia. The man, actually, he spent his time uh, growing up in Texas and Australia. So, you know, you didn't really uh, note much of an accent there. 
Uh, he's, he's, he's culturally ambiguous, you might say, with his accent, but a super smart guy. had a lot of fun talking to him. We're going to be breaking down a lot of the topics that were raised in the course of that interview over the next couple of months. This is uh, by far not my final episode that I'm going to be doing on capitalist finance and socialist transformation. There's so many different topics there to break down. I want to have an episode on stagflation, the Volcker shock, and all of that stuff. I want to do an episode on Taft-Hartley. I want to do an episode on you know the the wage squeeze. All of these things, right? We they really do deserve their own specific treatment. But we're gonna we're starting big here. We're going general, and we're gonna work down to the specifics of uh, some of the impediments to the socialist project over the course of the last 100 years or so. A lot of great stuff coming your way next week. I've got Leslie Lee coming on the show. He is a co-host over at the Struggle Session podcast. They talk about politics, video games, movies, comic books, uh, all that nerdy shit that so many of you uh, love so much. I'd be onto it, man. I just don't have time, honestly. I don't have time. God knows I'd love to play video games more. But in any case, uh, Leslie and I are going to be talking about Black Panther, the movie. It's been taking the world by storm and uh, there have been many hot takes. Many podcast episodes have been dedicated to this movie. And I got to say, most of them are shit. Most of them completely suck, <laughs> uh, which is why I'm bringing Leslie on the show. We're going to come at it from the perspective that you all know and love by now, which is an anti-race essentialist uh, lens. I think that we can bring something very unique to the commentary that has been uh, already widely circulated around this movie going to be talking about the movie get out as well that horror flick uh just recently won jordan peele its director some critical acclaim and some awards at the oscars a couple of weeks back and uh so we're going to be talking about those films uh you know representational politics and uh race essentialism i mean it's alive and well as alive and well as ever and uh, my listeners will have a lot of that stuff under their belts for my anti-essentialism summer series 2017 that I ran last summer with the likes of Pascal Robert, Adolf Reed, Cedric Johnson, uh, Nevada Damajumdar, uh, Vivek Chibber. Uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, were, were contributed to that anti-essentialism series in a variety of ways. So go brush up on those episodes. Leslie and I are going to be, uh, you know, recalling a lot of those arguments there and expanding on them in a lot of really uh, important ways, I think, given this kind of uh, knee-jerk race essentialist moment that we're living in today that uh, unfortunately, I think, personally, I think is is uh, destructive to the socialist project. And uh, we, we need to call it out for what it is. We need to be very aware of what we're consuming, what kind of faux radical politics are being shoved down our throats. All right. So until then, uh, same time, same place next week, you know where to find the Dead Pundit Society. Hit us up on patreon.com slash dead pundits. Subscribe and support the new left agenda. You're not going to hear this kind of analysis and critical perspective anywhere else. So support us. Get access to the B side. It's going to be dropping in a couple of days with Mike Beggs. I've got one from Dan Denver from the Dig Podcast. It's over there from last week. Lots of other really great stuff. So on your way out, I'm going to be bringing you a little tune. It's called Why Is It So Hard by Charles Bradley. He's a soulful singer, and you're going to find uh, 
the reason why I decided to play this little tune right away. It's a soulful tune about why is it so hard to get by in America these days. Dead Pundit. Got me a job to get away from all. 